This week's show is supported by Nikon USA, whose latest camera is the Z8. Its compact design and user-friendly form factor are combined with state-of-the-art autofocus and sensor technology, making it an ideal tool for any photographer producing still, video, or both. Whether you're upgrading from an older DSLR or making the step up to a full-frame sensor, find out how the Z8 can transform and elevate your photography by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. We're also supported by the Charcoal Book Club. This carefully curated selection reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they're delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or to expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout. Countless people like making photographs. Fewer people do it for a lifetime, filled with the same happiness and joy they felt when they first picked up a camera. It has little to do with the ability to earn a living from making photographs. Instead, it's about loving to be a creative. George Lang's story is as much about the life that photography has allowed him to live as the photographs he's made. Lang's book, Picturing Joy, is filled with stories and photographs of the exceptional musicians, actors, artists, and everyday people he has met throughout his life. It's a wonderful tale of how photography provides us with memories we might not have experienced otherwise. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, George. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's such a uh, illustrious crew that I'm a part of now, all, all the shows that you've done. Oh, well, you're, you're very welcome. You're very deserving of being on the show. So, And thanks to your people for reaching out and, and letting me know about you and your work. Thanks. Um, yeah, going through, going through the book, I, I really enjoyed the pictures and the stories. But I think that the title of the book uh, really, and, and there's a quote that you have in the introduction that just kind of sets the tone and really sang to me, um, which is one of the reasons that, okay, once I read that, I was like, okay, we got to talk. <laughs> and, and it's that line that you say that you want your photographs to reflect more what you feel than what you see. That's right. And I, I, I love that and I don't hear it often enough. And I know when I'm going through, you know, images on Instagram or I'm looking at books and stuff like that, I'm waiting to feel something, mm. you know, when I take a look at, when I take a look at photographs and there's so much where photographs, they look great, you know, they're accomplished, they're lit well, they're composed beautifully. They have all those things that a, a wonderful photograph should have but I don't necessarily feel something. Right. And then when I feel it, I don't know if I can explain why I'm feeling it. I just know that I'm feeling it. And I love that you as a photographer have, have had had that, have had that from the beginning of your career until, until now. Right. And so I wanted to start off the conversation with, with that sensibility, you know, why, why do you think, you became a person for whom that was the priority, that that was the most important thing about you creating your work. 
Wow. Um, I think that that is what I'm after and probably all of us are after in everything we uh, do in life. If we go coming here right now to meet you, I am so much more interesting in, interested in what you feel like and who you are and almost anything except the visuals. You look beautiful, you have great eyeglasses <laughs> and a great voice, but there's some, there's some other thing that we're trying to, that we need as, as a human beings. We, we all wake up craving connection. I am lucky to be in a really beautiful marriage. And before I even open my eyes, I can feel my wife. Hmm. I can feel her body. I can hear her breath. I can, I, I can take all that in. And am I taking photographs with my eyes closed? <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. but, but that's where it all starts for me. And then even still before my eyes open, I can hear my kids starting to rustle and get ready and yell in if they need something and all that's going on and all that's happening in the morning before my eyes even open up. So I'm just taking what's happening there and kind of trying to live my whole life based on, on using all of my senses. Sometimes when, when people say, how do I take a good picture? I say, the first thing to do is close your eyes. Close your eyes and what does it smell like? What does it sound like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? And then you can open your eyes and, you know, you, you know but otherwise, if our eyes become the whole thing, then all these other senses that we have to um, take in any situation that we're in, uh, kind of, we don't get to use that. You're, you're talking about being in the moment. Completely. Being in the moment, not being preoccupied with the camera or the settings or where the lighting is yeah. or any of that yeah. stuff. It's about being right where you are in that moment, either by yourself or with the person that you photograph. And as free as you can be. I mean, I I'm a portrait photographer. I photograph people. I'm not interested as much in where I'm at in that moment as learning from them. I want to learn from my subjects. If I'm just showing you what I already know that I'm just kind of, it gets boring. But what makes my pictures interesting and what makes my life interesting is meeting incredible people and them sharing their way of seeing the world and their way of appreciating the world and what makes them special. And it all sounds, you know, all of us photographers talking about what we do, I feel like it all sounds obvious and corny, but every single day I wake up really wanting to learn something new, to take a picture I've never taken before, to see something in a way that I've never seen it. And part of that's me getting in that place. And part of that's just really paying attention to what's going on. And my pictures are based on teeny weeny hunches and teeny weeny ideas. I photographed Jimmy and Warren, and Warren Buffett together mm -hmm. and they're standing in front of me. What, what are you gonna do to make it interesting? Just to change it just a little bit that changes everything. So I, I asked them to dress up as each other. For, for Warren to put on the Hawaiian shirt and Jimmy to put on the suit. And there's this picture of Warren fixing Jimmy's tie and Jimmy's looking over to me, <laughs> over at me. And it's mm -hmm. just this moment that is so extraordinary that wouldn't have existed without that simple little twist in, in what they were wearing. How important is it for you to be comfortable in your own skin, <laughs> in, in order to sort of be able to evoke that from someone 
else. Because uh, for me, speaking for myself, that is probably the bigger challenge. The camera stuff, technical stuff, yeah, easy to, to pick up. But being comfortable in my own skin so that I can be present with someone is sometimes... Been, been a challenge. I'm better at it, but I think that was one of my earlier struggles with feeling comfortable enough to be myself. Because I think that's really important in order to be to invite someone to open up themselves. Right. So if if we were thinking about kissing, when you think about kissing, you're going to be with someone that you have strong feelings about. Hopefully, you are going to be expressing yourself in the most intimate way. And what are you using? You're using your lips. You're using your tongue, maybe. You're, you're using your hands. Your eyes are probably closed because you're, you're so close to them. And when you think about kissing objectively, it's the weirdest thing ever. It's, com <laughs> it's completely bizarre. But then when you're kissing, the world's spinning. Like everything's spinning. Everything's connecting. You're able to communicate in a way that is so powerful that objectively makes no sense and subjectively makes all the sense in the world at the time. And I think that's what, what taking pictures is like. When you think about having someone come to your space or you go to their space and you're going to connect with them in an intimate way, it's, it, it makes no sense. Most of the people I photograph are strangers. I've never met them before. And I have sometimes a half hour with them, sometimes more, sometimes less. And I have to have some, some connection and I would imagine that when you put on your headphones and get in front of the microphone before, what am I going to ask this photographer? What are we going to talk about? Where is it going to go? Is this guy going to be nice or is he, is he going to be full of himself? Like, is he going to let me ask questions or is he going to do all the talking? You know, where is this going to go? But then you put on your headphones and then you put up. In, you know, you're in front of your microphone and we have this very intimate audio connection and we can we get to look at each other. And it's it's very um, it's a completely different thing. So I think the act of photographing, especially after you've been doing it a while and if you've really paid attention and um, and taken in all the gifts, I mean, all these people that pose for us, they're giving us a gift. And the gift is them. It's like everyone I photograph from my young cousin, Alana, or my, or my kids, or the president, you know, President Obama, you know, taking his picture. They're all giving me a gift. And for that amount of time, the gift is them. And how are you going to spend that time? Yeah. Your, your picture of, of Sophia Loren is a showstopper. <laughs> I mean, I looked at that picture and I... I I just stopped and just stared at it. Because here is one of the women who is legendary for her beauty, right? And you capture her in one of the most intimate photographs I've ever seen of her. Wow. She's beautiful, but she's genuine in that same moment. And the, the, the fact that she was willing to be that way with you, mm -hmm. um, I I just found I just amazing. Um, tell us about about that image and what the, and what that experience was like. So I get this assignment from Allure magazine to photograph Sophia Loren. I'm living in LA at the time, the most elegant woman on the planet, 
She's, she, she, she's just, there's just something about her that is magical. And she also plays roles that are completely down to earth. So you aren't thinking I'm photographing a prima donna. You're thinking about all these, all these different sides of her. And I, I rented a, uh, an Italian villa in Beverly Hills of all places. Cause that's where we were. That's where the shooting was. And she comes in, she wraps herself in a towel. She gets a glass of wine. She sits down on the floor and she starts doing her own hair and makeup. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the picture. That's the picture. Now, afterwards, I had this idea where I wanted to do something very utilitarian with a woman so glamorous. So I put her in this beautiful, long, tall, oldham dress that she looked amazing. And I put a leaf blower on her back and she's holding the, um, the leaf blower and I have her going around the garden blowing the leaves. So I have the most elegant woman in the world doing something that many of us do in our backyards mm-hmm. <laughs> and front yards. Um, and uh, it was just a magical moment. But then it's done and we had lunch. I, I had this beautiful lunch catered with linen tablecloths and linen napkins and she sits across from me and I am always just pinching myself. I can't believe how, how lucky I, uh, the opportunity is to have lunch with Sophia Loren. After lunch, she gets out her lipstick, she puts on her lips and she presses it against the napkin. And it's the only autograph I've ever gotten in my entire career. <laughs> in that moment that she's there applying her makeup, did you, did you hesitate in terms of making the photograph or did you just? That's a really good question. You know, many times, what, what you were talking about before um, is really about self-confidence. Do you have the confidence to, to say what you're thinking, to take the picture that you're seeing? Um, and a lot of my career has been playing with that feeling, you know, taking a picture is such an, such an, there's such extraordinary power in, and responsibility in doing a portrait of someone. And oftentimes I've held back and said, I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, um, in that case, it was just there. I mean, there was another time I walked into Kate Spade's office and she was painting her toenails bright pink and her foot's up on her red lacquer desk. And I was there to do headshots for a magazine cover. And I walk in and it's this fabulous scene. And I said, can I take a picture? And she goes, sure. Now, as far as I was concerned, I was done in 10 seconds. <laughs> there was the picture. I'm done. Yeah. Now I had to do the work for the people that hired me that um, got me in that door. But the picture that's lasted forever is this totally joyous picture of Kate Spade painting her toenails. And I just, especially now that she died so tragically and, you know, so much of when people die of suicide, so much of their life is their legacy is under the cloud of what happened to them at the very end and their depression, but it's not all of who they were. And my picture shows this joyous moment, funny moment that we shared that she was happy to share. And I'm so happy to be able to put that out in the world. Because I think that is, there's so many moments that I, and I know countless other photographers who are listening, we see a moment. And we have that rush of excitement at having discovered it. 
and yet pulling back, right? Not asking or not making the photograph, even though every cell in our body is on fire saying, this is a moment, <laughs> right? And, and it's, and especially in the, your kind of work, you know, when you're working with people, you know, who are, are well known or acclaimed in whatever way, and you have moments with them. And, and there's so many things that are, are being imposed on the time that you have there. And being able to completely trust yourself to do it when you feel it. Uh, well, trust yourself, but also, you know, getting back to responsibility. As photographers, I feel I have a huge responsibility to my subject, to not embarrass them, to not, mm -hmm. you know, we are the experts on photography and how photography works much more. Like it always amuses me when a CEO is looking at an annual report and making decisions on the photography. It's like, what do they know about photography? <laughs> you know, all these people, if you're with a great art director or a great designer or someone like that, lots of people have great style and honestly know more about photography than me and how it goes out in the world. But I've had, you know, experiences um, where I can make someone look really bad or I could take a picture that should not be taken. And that's where it really gets complicated. Shooting Kate Spade, asking her to photograph her painting her toenails or Sophia Loren putting on her makeup, that's not a hard ask. Um, but I'll tell you a story that's completely crazy. I had a shooting at Aretha Franklin's house outside of Detroit. And I'm invited into her home. And she said, I'm gonna go get ready. I'll be out in a little bit. So I set up my backdrop and I'm waiting an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. She comes out dressed as Queen Nefertiti. <laughs> like looking like a million dollars. And you know, people always ask when you photograph celebrities, are they down to earth? The one thing I don't want is a celebrity that's down to earth. That is completely boring. I want someone who is living like bigger than life. Aretha Franklin, bigger than life. Total diva, that's what's amazing. Like she is creating, even if you watch that film of her doing the Amazing Grace concert that they released yes. after she died, mm -hmm. just yeah. watch her in that. There is a power that is almost indescribable. You know, not only with her voice, but her conviction and her focus and her, like where she had to go to create that music and how much that music was a part of her. Like, that's what you want. You, you, you want people that are, are bigger than, I mean, I just love that. So anyhow, we do the shooting and then she disappears for another three hours and comes out dressed equally over the top and amazing. And it goes on all day and finally she says, we're done. And meanwhile, <laughs> each time she came out, she maybe let me take five or six frames. That was it. It wasn't, it wasn't anything. Um, and she goes in her room, puts on jeans and a T-shirt, goes in the kitchen, gets a big plate of fried chicken, sits down on her huge sofa, puts the fried chicken on her lap and falls asleep. Oh, my. So do you take that picture? No. No. No, you don't. You're, you're looking at a picture that will definitely get, be shown forever. It will definitely 
define her in a way that would be like that she would be horrified. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just felt what a privilege it was to be able to come in her home and, and take these pictures that she wanted to take. And I took them in a way that I felt was really respectful. And I am not going to sneak around and take the picture that's going to embarrass her. That's, that's not yeah. what I do. The other, other portrait that you have in your book is that of Anita Hill. Oh, my gosh. And then, and when I read that you that you created that picture by just raising a garage door and using the light coming through the door, it just blew my mind. Because I think that, that is one of the most um, beautiful photographs that I've seen of her. Mm. And, and man, so many lenses were on her and still, still are. And, but I felt in that photograph, its simplicity and its genuineness is incredibly powerful. And to, to think that, I think it's a, there's a lesson to be learned for any photographer who thinks they need a bunch of equipment in order <laughs> to make a, 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 an amazing portrait of someone uh, needs to know that picture. Right. Well, it's amazing. I had seen people take pictures that were backlit and I had never done it before, but I realized, you know, looking at them that people looked, it's a very flattering light. It can be a very flattering light. And I go to, I think it was Oklahoma City. It was definitely in Oklahoma. And I meet her. Um, and I just wanted to take a picture that showed her beauty and her strength. And she was so maligned in those hearings and so uh, treated so horribly. And I wanted to create the exact opposite experience. So we're in this place that really isn't that interesting. And I could have set up lights and done a backdrop or something, but I don't really like to do that. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna try that backlighting trick. <laughs> so I like opened the garage door and got a couple, probably some reflectors or something. And she just looked astonishing, astonishing, strong and beautiful and powerful and she allowed, she was allowed then, she had been so defensive in the hearings, which she had to be because yeah. she was being attacked the whole time. In that moment, she allowed us in. And that was the gift that she gave to me. Mm -hmm. And that was the gift that she gave to anyone that sees that, that photograph. Uh, and that, that's incredible to be the, um, the conduit <laughs> between her and that moment and who she is and in the world. I found some pictures recently um, of that shooting behind the scenes that someone took. And the two of us oh, are, okay. are laughing like crazy. Like we aren't just like smiling, we are laughing. I don't know what was going on, but you also, you never see that side of her either. Um, and seeing those pictures just, I thought this is, this is, really, um, this is really good. So I never printed my, my photographs until the last five or six years. I was never interested in printing them. I wasn't that interested in ideas around legacy or anything else. And I put them all in storage in my hometown of Pittsburgh, where I happen to live now, but didn't live for since high school till the, about four years ago. And 
all the film was there from the 90s and all the even the hard drives were there too after that and i would come back to visit my parents in pittsburgh and i'd go to visit the storage area and it just it was massive amount of film i had 100 drawers just from the 90s and every drawer had 20 different assignments in it it was just crazy and when i'd go there it would just overwhelm me and i'd say to myself i have to be friends with these these are my friends these pictures are my friends. We have to, yeah. we have to, have, we have to be buddies. But it would, it would overwhelm me, and I'd run away. And finally, about five years ago, I was living in Boulder, Colorado. I skimmed the top. I grabbed a couple boxes and took it back there and scanned and made a box of prints. And it was exciting. It didn't. It's not what I live for, but it was exciting to see what I had done. And when I moved to Pittsburgh, I did this wall. It's right over here of of maybe 20 of the pictures. And I looked at it and I realized that my whole career has been a parade. And it's a parade and whoever I photograph is in the front of the parade. I photographed um, Kia Tomlin two nights ago. She's in the front of the parade. The night before I photographed for the symphony in Pittsburgh, the, the bass player was in the front of the parade. And you've done the same thing. You've done over 600 interviews with photographers and we're all in this parade. And what connects us? You do. You know, everyone has their own story. Everyone that I photographed has their own story and their own look and there's all these things, but it's a parade of, of um, people that are connected by a, us. And how lucky are we and privileged to have been able to meet these people, to be able to interact. Yeah. It's amazing. And in my case, I don't go into these shootings with anything in my head. I don't even do the research. I did the ads for the Seinfeld show. I've never seen the Seinfeld show. <laughs> I saw it actually a year ago. My wife and I don't watch too much TV, but we were like one night, let's watch something. It was like... <laughs> and we turned it on. I said, oh, there's a Seinfeld show. I've never seen it. Now, this is 20 years after I did those ads. And we turn it on and I'm laughing. And I said, wow, this is really funny. And she's going, yeah, you idiot. Like, this is a really funny show <laughs> that you missed out on. The last ad I did for the Seinfeld show was of their feet. It was, it was the ad for the last show, and I just showed their feet. And there was nothing special about their shoes. It, they were like dumb, everyday shoes. But everyone knew that was Michael's shoes, and that was Jerry's shoes, and that was Julia's shoes. And it was really, um, it was really funny. But I, didn't, but I kind of wasn't in on the joke because I didn't really know the characters. So I'm what not, advantage do you... Go, go ahead. <laughs> So what, what advantage do you feel you have by not doing all this, all this research uh, ahead of time? I'm not just, interested just in, in. In, in the characters that they play. I'm interested in who they are as people. Other people can photograph the characters. Other people can photograph like the sets and all that stuff. I am interested in having an experience with who they are as people. And I don't go in with ideas because I love to improvise. I love it. I feel like, like if I do have any ideas, I write them on the, what would be the equivalent of an Etch-a-Sketch. 
And just as I'm getting ready to shoot, I flip the etch sketch and shake it so there's nothing on it. And I start with a blank slate. I, there's a jazz musician named Keith Jarrett. And he... Oh, used, yeah. Oh, yes. I loved Keith. And I'm not at that level, but I use him as, as um, inspiration because he goes on... He used to go on stage and just play what came to him. Whatever came to him, he would play. He had no agenda. He had no compositions. He had nothing. He was just, would take all the experiences that he would have and see how they came together in that moment with that audience. And it's beautiful. And again, again, that goes back to this whole idea of having confidence enough to, to do that. (laughs) <laughs> to, or, to jump into the <laughs> or, or great fear <laughs> so if you are really afraid you're going to do something too because you don't want to get caught with your pants down but it's like I'm looking at this wall there's a picture of Tracy Ullman and I go to photograph mm-hmm. her for, for Vanity Fair and I'm there to do a portrait of her and her husband but I walk in and she has one of these tables that you know you can expand or contract with leafs and yeah. it's covered with her wigs. So I just like said, oh, let's spread the table. Don't put the leaf in. Put your head up there between the, the wigs. It was just a teeny weeny idea. There's a picture of Matt Groening, who was the creator of The Simpsons. And I'm on the Paramount lot. And I saw a mask from one of the characters. I said, put that on the back of your head and just draw on the wall. You don't even see his face. There's a picture of Ewan McGregor. I was walking down the hallway of the production office in Alabama for Big Fish, and there was a door that was just slightly cracked, and I saw this big stuffed lion inside. And I asked if we could use it, and they never let you use that stuff, but they let me use it. Um, it, It was a story, this is dating it a little, on how much he loved smoking. So I got the lion. I put my head in first just to make sure it was safe. And then I had him come in, cigarette dangling from his mouth, inside the lion's head. There's our picture. Um, All my shootings with Jim Carrey, they were done in 20 minutes, the whole ad campaign. I would just like, I would just light a spark and he would explode every single time. And in 20 minutes, we had the whole campaign. The Nikon Z8 is a camera whose lightweight and compact design disguises a camera with the latest in sensor and autofocus technology. Whether you're into sports, wildlife, or portraiture, the Z8 provides everything you need to make a camera both reliable and fun. Its 45.7 megapixel full-frame stack sensor delivers a rich detail and beautiful color. It features blistering fast and accurate autofocus, including subject detection developed with deep learning technology. Its VR technology provides up to six-stop image stabilization when a tripod isn't an option. It features internal 8K video at 60p, as well as the ability to produce 120p at 4K. Its pro-grade construction features an echo-friendly carbon fiber chassis, premium weather sealing, a sensor shield, and dual card slots. So you'll enjoy a camera that delivers even under the harshest of conditions. Learn more about the Z8 and how it can make a difference in your photography by visiting Nikon USA forward slash podcast Z8. 
The Charcoal Book Club is now back as a sponsor and wants to share a special event coming in 2024. The Chico Review is an annual event that gathers photographers to celebrate their love for photography. It's more than just an opportunity to share your work and meet publishers and editors. It's a rare opportunity to be surrounded and immersed by a community that prioritizes photography and being a photographer. If you've never had such an experience, mark the date and register for the event scheduled for March 17th through the 24th in Prey, Montana. Find out more by visiting ChicoReview.com or CharcoalBookClub.com. The, um, the story of, of you going to college. Now, let mm. me see if I, I got this, this right. It seems like you took a core of the campus and you <laughs> moved and you were living in an apartment across the street. Not yet registered. And you take the tour and then you apply. <laughs> Is that right? Not, oh, that's almost right. I okay. had been um, visiting, a, I, I decided to surprise a girlfriend who was, who was at uh, an all girls school. And I snuck in and I didn't realize that she actually was seeing someone else. I, I surprised her. <laughs> so I got kicked wow. out and I was near Providence and I decided I would go look at RISD. I was going to school at the Ithaca College at the time and just for one year. And I take a tour of RISD, but I get a room above this mafia bar that's pounding and I have this little room and I go and take the tour and I come out of what they call Benson Hall, which is a student union. And they said, that's the photo building. And I thought, well, that's where I'll be going ne next year. And I go back to this little room and filled out the application just like in, in, in an hour. You had to do drawings. Well, I can't draw. So I just do these drawings and I turn this thing in and I have no clue how I got accepted, but I did. And there was a friend of mine that wrote for her essay why I want to go to RISD. She said, asking me why I want to go to RISD is like asking a clown why they want to join the circus. And that's <laughs> the people that were at that school were the people that were supposed to be at that school. I honestly, by the grace of God, <laughs> some miracle wound up at that school. I never knew anyone that was an artist. I never knew anyone that had gone to art school. It wasn't part of our neighborhood. Um, and it was just, it was just an extraordinary experience. I, um, I was there since we're talking to photographers. Um, it was the very end of Harry Callahan and Aaron Siskin being there. So I oh, had exposure wow. to them and, and more, more to Aaron than Harry, but Harry was a pretty quiet guy. Aaron was super fun and great, but somehow I got on the, um, search committee for a teacher for the next year. And Aaron and Harry were on it and some other people. And that night that I went to visit the girlfriend, I wound up sleeping in this um, study hall. And it was filled with pictures by a woman named Wendy Snyder McNeil. And these pictures, I stayed up all night and they just haunted me. They were the most beautiful portraits. She was an incredible photographer. And when they, when I'm on this committee to get a new teacher, I said, who is Wendy Snyder McNeil? We should get her, knowing nothing about her. Well, it turns out she was teaching in New England and they said, well, we aren't gonna hire a woman. 
<laughs> at the time, okay. which is so crazy. This is the 70s. And I thought, well, that's that. I came back in the fall. They had hired Wendy Snyder McNeil. And she not only became my teacher, but my mentor and just a very close friend through her whole life, like my whole adult life. Um, and she had a mantra every week to me. She used to say, don't think, just take pictures. Don't think, yeah. just take pictures. So that's what I did. I would record everything, audio recordings of everything. And I realized that people would have conversations with me that they wouldn't have with each other. Even couples, even happily married couples. They would tell me, mm -hmm. even my parents, they would tell me things in a way that they wouldn't tell each other. And then I would edit these together into a conversation they would never have and run it behind <laughs> photographs I was taking. It was insane. And then I was really into making it a whole thing. I would squeeze orange juice and have food. And I made it this whole event. Uh, and Wendy just was like, go George, go. She couldn't have been That's more great. supportive. And one of my classmates was Francesca Woodman. Do you know yeah. Francesca's work? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so um, that was going on too. And um, Francesca's best friend was my roommate, Sloan. So Francesca would, didn't have a shower. So she would come to our apartment and disappear in the bathroom. And like for an hour, there was all this steam coming out, all backlit, by the way. It was a very sunny bathroom and all this steam coming out. And then finally, Francesca would emerge with her hair all wrapped in a towel and we would have tuna fish. <laughs> we were poor it, students. <laughs> you, know, you know, her fame is, is happened after she unfortunately um, took her took her own life, and the work has just been so influential. I mean, you see so much of of her sensibility that she had then in so many people who do self portraits now. Especially when Instagram and stuff like that, it's like you just got to harken back to her because she was doing it well before anybody else and had a phone to do it with. Well, she was also um, working on a level that was just, I mean, she, at RISD, there, everyone wanted to be an artist. They were there to be an artist. Francesca arrived a fully formed artist and she was the real deal. And it mm. was really interesting. Her work was not embraced at RISD. I was putting my pictures up, well, I was doing my, my uh, slideshows, but everyone would be putting their pictures up and Francesca was putting her pictures up. And people did not love her work and did not encourage her. And there's a picture of her with her pictures up on the wall that she took after class one day where she pinned herself up there too, like she had been crucified <laughs> up there, which is, which is not far from the truth. Um, my relationship with Francesca was as, as a friend. And we used to laugh and have fun. And she really had fun with Sloan, my roommate. And I think of her laugh more than anything. And, and you know, after she died and there's this um, narrative that got, you know, that was edited or created or whatever of who she was and it was all under the cloud of her suicide. And yeah. I didn't even know that part of her. She was a difficult friend. She could be very, Prickly, <laughs> but she was also one of the most extraordinary people. And you know, when you choose friends, all of your friends can't be difficult, but a couple can, and, and a couple <laughs> yes. can like, like there are a couple like this. This would be crazy if every friend was like this, but but this person just brings so much into my life that I would never have 
that I would never get to experience. Um, and then I kept all of my Francesca things in a box for decades. All the pictures we took together, all the pictures I took of her and her mother. Um, and when she left RISD, she said, go to my loft and take whatever you want. There's pictures around. So I, I grabbed a couple and put them in, in this box. And about six or seven years ago, I was in Boulder and the curator um, of the MCA Denver came to my studio and I said, I have a box you might be interested in. And I opened it up and she just kind of flipped out and she said, I want to do a show, an entire floor of the museum with what's in this box. And they did it. And it was really um, powerful. And then Rizzoli did the book. Hmm. You know, it's, it's an interesting experience to be around and, and sort of coming up into your own when you're in the orbit of someone who is not just talented, but seems to have this sort of mindset, this sort of, they're like a train that is just determined to make something happen for themselves. And it seems like you've had that opportunity more than once in, in, in your life. You know, you talk about your friendship with Dwayne Michaels, mm. you know, um, and, and being around people like that, even if your work, even if you're not sort of trying to mirror their career or their aesthetic or anything like that, that there's a gift that comes from having a, a, hopefully a friendship with someone like that. Right. Talk about what that's meant for you in terms of well, what you do. Well, you know, I came to being a father very late. I'm an old dad. I have a 13 and 16 year old as of October, 2023. <laughs> and when you're a father, you realize that you are planting seeds. I always joke, here is the Louis Armstrong seed. Here is the Tom Waits seed. Here is the, um, here's the Pittsburgh Pirates seed. Or the, or this, like you expose them to all these things. You cannot choose what comes up. You can try and water some part of it or fertilize some part of it or encourage them, but you can't like, but they need, your children need as many seeds in their garden as they, as they can handle because you want to show them all the possibilities. And the people that I have been lucky enough to have worked with or become friends with or exposed to their work. It's all like seeds. Wendy Snyder McNeil, she was, she was seeding my garden. Dwayne Michaels, when I was at RISD, he gave a talk at MIT. And I go up there with my little cassette recorder. He's from Pittsburgh, by the way, just outside of Pittsburgh, where, where, where I'm from. And he loves Pittsburgh. I go up to this talk with my little recorder. I record it. He talks very fast and he's on fire. His, he's oh, yeah. on fire. I've been lucky enough to interview him. So. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. And I go back to RISD and I spend the next week transcribing that talk on this lousy recording of this guy speaking incredibly fast. It takes me a whole week. I still have, <laughs> I have it right over here. I have the transcript, that legal pad, because that became my creative Bible. Everything I needed to know creatively was in that talk. It was, a, wow. it was a really rich garden. It was a really rich garden. And then you go around, and I worked with Annie Leibovitz after RISD. 
And people ask me afterwards, what did you, what did you learn from Annie? Well, I learned rhythm. I learned rhythm. To be a professional photographer is talking in a certain way with your subjects, with your clients. It's, it's talking about what you did. It's talking about what you're going to do. It's, it's, there's a whole choreography to it. And that's what I learned from Annie. You know, I learned her choreography. That was not going to be my choreography, but it, it allowed me to slowly by maybe imitating her a little bit, maybe experience that, experiencing it with her, um, that allowed me to, um, to over time discover my own rhythm. Which is important. Yeah. Which is so important. But that word never yeah, gets I, brought up. Yeah, because I saw there was a photographer <laughs> whose work I was looking at, and I went, wait a second, this looks really familiar. And um, discovered that they had been an assistant for Mary Ellen Mark. Ah. So they had sort of emulated a lot of sort of the aesthetic in terms of the using the square format and the use of the, the flash. And I was just like, oh, OK, you know, and it's and it was I didn't see that as a good thing. You know, yeah, no, because because I'm looking at his photographs, but I'm thinking of Mary Ellen Mark. Right. And 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 I think that. Learning photography is always about emulation. You see some work, you try to understand it, you try, you go out there and you try to create it yourself just so you, so you can understand the mechanics of it. But at, at some point you have to make the leap from there and somehow you know what it is? bring your own voice. It's all these people whispering in my ear when I'm taking pictures. Dwayne's whispering, Wendy's whispering. Not so much Annie, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, they're all whispering in my ear. My, my mom's whispering in my ear. My dad's whispering in my ear. Now my son Jackson, who has this, when my book um, was right about to go to the printer, I show it to my 15-year-old son Jackson last spring. And the, the proofreader signed off on it. The designer signed off on it. Everyone signed off on it. I've signed off on it. He says, Dad, what about this? And what about this? And you missed this. And he found all these things that were such obvious errors. Yeah. And, and, and he was seeing them too. So now when I'm doing things, Jackson's whispering in my ear, oh, don't forget, or, you know. And I, I just feel when I'm taking pictures, it is every, everyone that I come from. It is everyone in the parade. It is my teachers. It is my grandparents. It is their grandparents. It is the conversation that we're having now will affect what I'm doing tomorrow. And I just think that we are, if we can absorb how lucky we are to, um, to listen and appreciate mm -hmm. you know, what we don't know, because for me, taking pictures is taking pictures that I haven't taken before, understanding things that I don't know. I don't want to go into anything thinking I know anything. Except, except at this stage of my career, I've had a lot of experience. So sometimes if there's a puddle, I'll step over it rather than in it. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that one of the things about when you're coming up is that you have to be willing to, if you're going to take risks, take big risk. If you're going to make a mistake, make a big mistake, because that's the stuff you're going to learn from. 
you don't necessarily want to do it in front of a client, but playing it safe, you know, doesn't necessarily get you where you want to get or, yeah, or allow you to create the kind of work that you want to create. Have you seen how much love you get when you cry? Mm-hmm. When you cry, whoever you're with, oh, let me hold you. Oh, let me, let me make you feel better. It's okay to fail. In fact, you might get more love failing than you get if you're successful. You talked, um, talk about a photograph in which technically or something failed, but it ended up being <laughs> exactly what was supposed to happen. Let me just address the second part of that question. I never know what's okay. supposed to happen. I never like know where this is going. Mm. And so I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, mm. but, uh, oh, yeah. but I was shooting the Obamas and I grew up a big liberal. I'm still a big liberal. I'm proud of that. Um, and I was so thrilled to be photographing Obama. I mean, I was crying all through that campaign and when he won and that, that inauguration and that, that night that he won was just one of the greatest nights of my life, just watching that. But I got this assignment to photograph him and I was so thrilled. It was a teeny weeny little shooting. It was him and Michelle and they were visiting a nursing home and I was allowed to set up a white seamless and do a magazine cover like for 20 minutes, you know, while they were there. And he comes in and he's, he's like, he's very cool, but I gotta tell you that smile that he has is like a switch. He's very serious, not smiling at all. He says, tell me when you're ready. I go, ready, boom, zip. Like the, the best smile of anyone I've ever photographed. But you know, truly, truly one of the thrills of my life. So I'm shooting, but I'm in this nursing home. I'm not like one of these photographers that checks the electricity that carefully. My strobe flips, flips the breaker, I have no power. But we were under this white tent and it was backlit and they were silhouettes. So I just kept shooting till my assistant figured out the power and the shot that I show is of the silhouette. Great picture. And you know exactly <laughs> who it is. <laughs> and you know exactly who it is. But what you don't know is I'm sitting there dying. I'm dying. That's a picture, that's a picture of my death. <laughs> There's this so, great quote from, okay. go ahead, no, go ahead, please. No, no, no. no let, let me get it, the quote. No, the, 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 it's Dwayne Michaels again. And he says, if you have a great idea on, on Monday, have it done by Friday. He tells me that all the time. Oh man, I am putting that up on my wall. But, but um, here we are, this is a man who is 91 years old now and he's producing a new work every week. Every week, he is on fire creatively. And all of you can get on his email list. He sends them out every Friday and it is just absolutely extraordinary what he's doing. Some of the work is brilliant. Some of it maybe not so brilliant and he doesn't care. He, he is doing what he wants to yeah. do. He is sharing it and we are all really lucky to live in a time of Dwayne Michaels. Uh, what I wanted to say before is the idea that we know anything about anyone is insanity. We don't know anything about anyone. There's a, an older couple that came to my studio 
to buy prints. They're very wealthy and they have a very nice new home that they've built on a very fancy street in Pittsburgh. And they come to my studio and they're here and I'm telling my stories and they say, I'll take this one, this one, this one, this one, and, and, and they leave. And I've sold four prints, I'm super happy. The next morning, the woman calls me and she goes, George, you know the woman, uh, you, you know the uh, photograph of the young man in the bubble bath pouring beer on his nipples? I go, yes, it's a picture of Drew Carey that I took. Uh, she says, I'd like that for the foyer of our home. I'd like a very large print of that for the foyer of our new home. And in that moment, I realized I don't know anything about anyone. <laughs> like nothing, nothing. And if we go into a photo shoot or a, if we're dating, or if we are going to a party and we think that we know anything about anyone, we're crazy. And the joy is those moments where we realize that we were underestimating everyone or we never imagined that they would respond to this or like that. Or when I find someone who really loves the choreographer, Pina Bausch, it's like we're instantly connected. Um, or some kind of music I'll put on I don't know. I'm a little obsessed right now with uh, John Baptiste's last two albums are amazing. And oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yes. And it's like I put that on and generally I'm introducing people to it. But if someone knows it, it's like it's great. But mm -hmm. I just, you know, my whole life I've been very curious. Like I've been I've just been curious and I I go on my shootings and I'm just curious. What would happen if if we did this? What do you think about this? How do you hold this? There's a um, when I moved back to Pittsburgh, I got involved with the Pittsburgh Symphony, which is it, it was an obsession of my mother's. And it's she's no longer here, but it's like thrilling for me to be able to to photograph for them. But at the first shooting that was a year ago, there's this young violist, his name is Sean Jewell. And he's gone right from Juilliard into the Pittsburgh Symphony, which is a really world-class organization. And he's 22 and it's like unheard of that someone goes at that age, right? Playing for a major orchestra. Sean comes to the shooting and I really want to do something special because it's the beginning of a bigger project. Sean comes and it's like, He's, he's, he's going to check off this box. I'm with the symphony. I'll go get my picture taken. I'll go, you know, see where I sit, whatever. He is not that into this shooting. And I know that, but I need him there. So he comes on the set. The first thing I say is pretend my lens is a mirror. Fix yourself in the mirror. So he's fixing his bow tie and everything. And then he takes out his instrument. And I said, stab my lens. He goes, what? I said, stab my lens. And he goes, I can't do that. You have a very expensive camera. I have a very expensive bow. I can't stab your lens. And I grab his bow and I start banging it against my lens. I said, stab my lens. And he did that. And we took this picture and it became the signature picture for the symphony all last year. It was all over. It was everywhere. It was really dynamic. It was very in your face. It was very intimate. But it all came from just a hunch that I had when he stepped on the set. And when I did that, I also learned that what goes on when you're sitting looking at a symphony is the musicians, you can't even barely see them, let alone hear what each one's doing. So I realized that my job as a photographer is to create an intimacy 
that you can't get any other way with the musicians. So all the pictures I take now, first of all, when everyone saw the picture of Sean, they wanted a Sean picture. Like they wanted to be that close. And, but all mm. the pictures are right in your face. Like the, the conductor, Monfred Honeck, is just very proper. He's, he's Austrian and very, you know, serious. And the first time we take pictures, it's just so serious. And finally, like halfway through the shooting, I said, what color is that Bruckner piece that you just recorded? He goes, oh, it's green. I said, what shade of green? And he gets very specific about the shade of green. And I'm turning my little LED light to that shade of green. He goes, that shade of green. So I take the picture of him in the green. I said, that Bach piece that you guys played last week, what color is that? And he had a very specific color associated with that piece. And we hmm. turned it in and did that. So that was the warm-up exercise. The next time that I photograph him, he's seen the picture of Sean, and he wants that. So to loosen him up, I put headphones on him. I said, just listen to music for a while. And he's listening, and he's, I tell him, close your eyes. And that's going on for a while. Then I take the headphones off, and he becomes wild. Wild. He has his baton in his mouth, and he's conducting with his hands. He's like just so much energy. And it's so extraordinary that after 15 minutes, no one can believe what we're seeing and we're thrilled. And I say, thank you, that was great. You know, that was fantastic, we're done. And he goes, he comes right up in my face. He goes, George, do you think we're done? He goes, I don't think <laughs> we're done. And from then on, the pictures are, if he would breathe, he would fog up my lens. They're right, right there. And they are just wow. amazing. And it's just all of these things that I do, I feel like it's the parade. It's this process. And one shooting in odd ways leads into another, or it might lead into a shoot, 10 shootings from now. But it's all this, this um, continuum. And, and, and it's, it's been really like... Uh, I've had a really, a really fun career. <laughs> so, so there's one other thing that I wanted to mention to you, which is, I, I gotta plug the book for one second. And oh, the absolutely. Book, the book, um, it's coming out November 7th. I just got copies this week. Um, it's kind of a self-publishing hybrid. I hired one company, both women run, to edit and design it, and another company to, get the printing done and distribute it and help with the marketing. Then I hired a PR person. I did a Kickstarter that raised almost all the money, which was great. Um, but anyhow, I have the book. <laughs> I just got it. And the book is based on putting this wall up of pictures and looking at it and going, this is, I, there's a thread going through all my pictures. And the thread is the same thing. There's a picture of me in the book. It's in my last book. But there's a picture of me when I was seven years old, leaning against a white Chevy in the driveway in Pittsburgh of the house that I'm living in now. And um, I've been taking pictures every day since I was seven. And it's like, I never knew why I was taking pictures. I thought, well, it's fun. I'm having great fun. I'm earning a living. Awesome, but I never knew how I came up with these ideas or what it was about. And when I looked at these pictures like three, not even three years ago, like a year ago, I realized that there was a very specific feeling of joy that I had as a child. And it wasn't like everything's happy, but it was exactly what you and I are doing right now. 
it was connecting with a person yeah. in a way that I've never connected before and a person I really didn't know. Although I feel like I know you from listening to many, many, many Canon frames. <laughs> Thank you. Um, which are. But I think that's. Speaking think of I, gifts. That's, but that is. I mean, that's. For me, the camera and making pictures is there's a joy associated with it. And whether you choose to make a living out of it or not, that's the thing to always remember. And but when I went to RISD, they used to tell me if someone's smiling in a picture, it's not art. And we were supposed to be artists. Yeah. And so that really hurt me. For years, I thought, well, people are smiling in my pictures and there's a joy in my pictures. And if that's not art, then I'm not an artist. And that's one of the reasons I never wanted to print my work, because I never thought it was art. Because well, thank, there was so much joy. Well, thank God times have changed. <laughs> especially, especially right now. The news is so horrific. People are being so horrible. They are so fearful. They are so inhuman. And we need this. We need yeah. each other. And we need to, sh to share what makes each one of us special. And we need to share it in as generous a way as we can. Amen. Amen. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Oh, my goodness. I always talk about Dwayne. Dwayne has been like a, uh, a fountain of uh, a fountain of love. I was so afraid to call Dwayne because. I would run into him on the streets of New York and he would, and he knew me and he'd say, George, call me, I'm in the phone book. And I'd go, I can't call you, you're Dwayne Michaels. It was just, it was just too, it was too big a deal. And finally I got over that, you know, you, you asked me before, how, how do you get the confidence to do what you need to do and want to do? And I finally, after decades, called Dwayne up and we had lunch. And it went on for three hours. And then he said, come back to my um, townhouse, which was a couple blocks away. I, I want to show you some things. Mm -hmm. And he showed me some of his films. He showed me at that first visit a film called Yurt, which I really recommend as a starting point for his, his latter films. It's, it's, it's on Vimeo. It's extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, but then he says, oh, they just did a new compilation of my portraits. Do you want to look at it? And I'm sitting there looking at these portraits and it was all that I could do not to burst into tears because here I am mm. with this person who I've just gotten so much from, who has been whispering in my ear my whole life and has been such a huge influence on not so much as me as a photographer, but me as a creative being and me as a human being like his values and the way that he approaches life and the way that he appreciates everyone is just uh, extraordinary. So I'm looking at these portraits and I said, Dwayne, these pictures are all my friends. I've been living with these pictures. I know every single thing. I've looked at these pictures for hours and hours and hours. We've had all these conversations, me in this picture of Marguerite, me in this picture of Meryl Streep, me in this picture of Tilda Swinton. Like, I know all these, like these are, these are my friends. And then, like that was extremely moving. But then I said, I think I have to take a picture with the two of us. 
He goes, Dwayne's incredibly generous. He goes, sure, what do you want to do? I said, let's go to your terrace. He has this little terrace and I gave, I had a Leica SL at the time, which is not a complicated camera unless you don't know how to use it. It's a simple camera, but it's complicated if you haven't touched one before. I give the camera to his assistant and I kind of show him how to use it. I said, I want a picture of our foreheads touching. So we are sitting there and our foreheads are touching and his assistant is fumbling with the camera and can't figure it out. And I'm this close to Dwayne, I'm like three inches away. And Dwayne whispers, he goes, what are you thinking? And I go, I'm just trying to download everything in your head through your forehead <laughs> right now. So there's another film, if you Google it, called The Boy Who Counted Stars. And two years ago, Dwayne came to Pittsburgh and he wanted to do a film about leaving McKeesport, which is the little town outside of Pittsburgh that he grew up in. And he needed someone to play the young Dwayne. And he asked if I knew anyone. And the, the, the biggest thrill for me was if he would choose my younger son, Asher, who was 10 at the time. And, uh, and he did. And speaking of full circle, the guy mm. I went and heard at MIT and transcribed on this legal pad and had looked up to my entire life was having my son play the young Dwayne in the movie. And we're on this set for two days and I'm just, I'm just in, in heaven. I mean, I oh, could not yeah. even believe this was happening, but there was no ending to the video. And, um, and I said, uh, Dwayne, the video needs an ending. He goes, well, what should the ending be? I said, well, maybe like the end of Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. You guys are going down a road and you're fighting and then holding hands and then fighting and holding hands. And he said, well, where should we shoot that? He goes, let's, let's, let's look around. And McKeesport's in terrible shape now. It's a totally rundown place. And we passed this sign that says Magic Palace. And it was just stenciled on a piece of plywood and it was a beauty shop. And Dwayne said, Magic Palace, let's use that. And he had a drone that came down to Magic Palace and he said, you shoot the ending. So, I am shooting the ending of a Dwayne Michaels film. It's, it's, wow. all, it's all too much. And I decided, oh, I, to, to I, I, I decided to do all shadows and them coming down, fighting with each other and then holding hands, fighting with each other and holding hands. And I just shoot shadows and they're meant to be, you know, edited very, very quickly. And so Dwayne goes back to New York. He goes, the ending's in the film. It's in it. And then he calls me a couple of days later. Sorry, the ending's out of the film. And I'm heartbroken. But, and then he runs it in negative and then he's playing with it. And then finally, um, it comes out and the ending, you'll see it. It's on the film. But uh, it's, it's really nice when at certain stages of our life, we see this circle, these circles. Yeah. And um, coming back to Pittsburgh, I had lived in New York and LA and then New York again and then Boulder, Colorado. And everywhere you go, home is where the heart is. You make it your home. But then I moved back. Not only did I move back to my hometown, I moved back to the house I grew up in after my mother passed away. And it's just, it's been, the last year of my career has been the most successful career, year of my career. 
Well, I'm glad to share some of it with uh, with my listeners. So, George, thank you so much. This was a real. This was a joy to spend time. Ah, thanks so much for including me. We hope that you've enjoyed this year's season of The Candid Frame. It's been a pleasure to put these together for you, and we look forward to bringing you even more in 2024. If you appreciate and want to support what we're doing here, especially with the coming season, we can always do with your help by having you become a Patreon supporter today. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. We continue to be committed to delivering a great show to you, but please show your support for the work that we're doing. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thanks. Thanks to George for joining us. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting georgelang.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social network, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to John William Brown, John Nelson, and Maurice Bellinger for their recent contributions. We've relaunched our newsletter if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, including book recommendations and announcements for special events and workshops. Please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>